Our scripture reading for this morning comes from the prophet Ezekiel, chapter 34, beginning with the 11th verse. For thus says the Lord God, I myself will search for my sheep and will seek them out. As shepherds seek out their flocks when they are among their scattered sheep, so I will seek my sheep. I will rescue them from all the places to which they have been scattered on a day of clouds and thick darkness. I will bring them out from the peoples and gather them from the countries and will bring them into their own land. And I will feed them on the mountains of Israel, by the watercourses and in all inhabited parts of the land. I will feed them with good pasture, and the mountain heights of Israel shall be their pasture. There they shall lie down in good grazing land, and they shall feed on rich pasture on the mountains of Israel. I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep, and I will make them lie down, says the Lord God. I will seek the lost, I will bring back the strayed, and I will bind up the injured, and I will strengthen the weak. But the fat and the strong I will destroy. I will feed them with justice. Therefore, thus says the Lord God to them, I myself will judge between the fat sheep and the lean sheep. Because you pushed with flank and shoulder and butted at all the weak animals with your horns until you scattered them far and wide, I will save my flock, and they shall no longer be ravaged, and I will judge between sheep and sheep. I will set up over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he shall feed them. He shall feed them and be their shepherd, and I, the Lord, will be their God, and my servant David shall be prince among them. I, the Lord, have spoken. Friends, our reading. I hope you all had a fantastic Thanksgiving. It's a special time to be with family. I personally loved seeing my nieces and nephew up in Chicago, but it's also great to be back here home in Houston, obviously to see all the loving faces of you here at FCC, and I'm also glad I'm not in the 30-degree weather. You know, I think I've been in Houston just long enough that the cold temperatures are starting to get to me. I take from my text this morning the 23rd verse of the 34th chapter of Ezekiel. I will set up over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he shall feed them. He shall feed them and be their shepherd. Please pray with me as the psalmist prayed. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. <clears throat> this year is an unusual year. I know what you're thinking. John, that's an understatement. I do read the newspapers. <laughs> and yes, it has been an unusual year politically. That's putting it mildly. But that's not what I'm referring to. It's an unusual year for the church calendar. You see, this year, Christmas Eve falls on a Sunday, which shifts the Sundays of Advent one week later. Normally, this Sunday, the Sunday after Thanksgiving, is the first Sunday in Advent. But that's not true this year. 
You'll have to wait until next Sunday to hear the great refrains of O Come, O Come, Emmanuel and the other sounds and smells of Advent. And because we're Congregationalists, we celebrate the Sunday before Thanksgiving as Pilgrim Sunday. But you know, in other parts of the church, they don't do that. The last Sunday before Advent is known as Christ the King Sunday. And because of this unusual calendar year, we get to celebrate Christ the King Sunday now. Some of you don't seem as excited as I thought you'd be. <laughs> and I can see somewhat some confusion on a few of your faces. Christ the King Sunday? What on earth is that? Well, it's funny you should ask. Christ the King Sunday was originally a Roman Catholic feast day. Pope Pius XI declared it so way back in 1925. He saw the increasing secularization of the world, the fact that more and more people were turning away from God, and wanted Catholics to remember that Christ was the Lord of all creation. Eventually, the feast moved to its present location on the last Sunday before Advent. During the liturgical renewal movement of the 1970s, Protestant churches who adopted the revised common lectionary also tended to adopt Christ the King Sunday. And now, with this unusual church year, we get to join the fun with our Roman Catholic brothers and sisters and so many other mainline churches. How exciting. This is our time to be like all the others. But I have to say that of all the liturgical holidays, Christ the King is probably the least FCC-type celebration. This congregation is not exactly what you might call a high Christology congregation. We're much more comfortable with Jesus as a rabbi and teacher than as the only begotten Son of God who reigns in glory at the right hand of God the Father and has dominion over all creation. In fact, FCC has such a low Christology and is so ill at ease with Christ as Lord of all creation that I almost decided to preach on something else altogether. But I'm a bit of a glutton for punishment. And also, after reading through the assigned text for this morning, our scripture reading from the prophet Ezekiel, I got thinking about how it might mean more than I originally had supposed. Ezekiel preached during what was the most difficult time in the life of ancient Judah. He lived during the final days of independent Judah and was taken into exile after the first sack of Jerusalem at the hands of the Babylonians. So we're talking around the year 600 B.C. That's when Ezekiel was doing his prophetic work. Our passage for today comes most likely between the first sacking of Jerusalem in 597 B.C. and the second one some ten years later. During that period, that first period between the first and second sack, uh, the elite of Israel had been taken into exile into Babylon. Now, the king of Judah, known as the shepherd of his people, had clearly failed. He had not walked in the ways of God and had oppressed the people. Plus, the king of Judah had been a really bad politician and had made alliances with the wrong people. He had completely eviscerated the State Department and did not listen to the advice of the wise men inside the D.C. Beltway equivalent of his era. (laughs) The prophecy we read today was God's word against the king and God's promise to become the one true shepherd of Israel who would gather the people who had been scattered in exile and bring them back to the land that was flowing with milk and honey. And God would establish David 
or David's true successor, as the one earthly shepherd for God's people. This is the text that's appointed for today. Here is Ezekiel prophesying that God would appoint a new shepherd, a new king in the line of David. You notice. Apart from some perhaps rather disturbing present-day parallels, it's hard as a Christian not to see Jesus as this promised Davidic successor, this promised Davidic shepherd. But the image we see of Jesus in this passage is not one of Christ ruling in glory at the right hand of God. We find a different image, something much more of this world and relevant. When I was in divinity school, I took a class on the artistic depictions of Jesus throughout history. We're forced, we had to take some course in religion and the arts, and I chose that one. I found the concept of Jesus depicted in art intriguing. I remember settling into my desk in one of the larger lecture halls at Yale Divinity School. The professor began lecturing and used a projector to illustrate what he was talking about. In that first class, he put on the screen the oldest image of Jesus that that archaeologists have found. And it's from the catacombs in Rome and dates back to the mid-2nd century. The image itself had faded somewhat over time. The paint on the stone walls had flaked off in various points, but the picture is unmistakable. There is a man carrying a lamb around his shoulders. That's it. That is the oldest or the earliest depiction of Jesus. Not some monarch seated on high, but the good shepherd who cares for the lost lamb. In the days and weeks that followed, I returned to class to find new images of Jesus, each of which reflected something about the time in which it was made. I found it remarkable. There was not one static view of who Jesus was, but how Christians saw Jesus depended profoundly on the culture of their day. After 313 AD, when Christianity became legal and the emperor himself became a supporter of Christianity, the images changed. For the first time, Christians built great basilicas, huge temples on the model of the temples to the Roman gods. At one end of the basilica was an apse, a concave wall where the high altar was placed. And high above those high altars, in the preeminent place of the basilica, was painted, image of, was painted images of Jesus as Pantocrator, or ruler of everything. This image of Jesus as Pantocrator was the embodiment of the new face of Christianity, The face was now the ruling faith of the empire. Emperors paid fealty to Jesus as their Lord and Savior, and the mosaics and frescoes of Jesus proclaimed that fact for all to see. And you can see an image of that printed on the front cover of your order of service. But as Christianity changed, so did the images of Christ. And I saw that change unfold in each Lashkar class. When Christian missionaries converted Ireland to the faith, we find in those locations Jesus in the form of a Druid priest. People used concepts that made sense to them when thinking about Jesus, their new savior. In the Middle Ages, as the cult of the Virgin Mary had grown, we find images of the infant Jesus on Mary's lap. I'm sure you've seen such images in countless museums. In the 11th century, the monk Anselm of Canterbury worked out the details of substitutionary atonement. Jesus' blood and his suffering pay the penalty for our sins. He substituted himself for us. 
Every blow and scourge that he received at the hands of the Romans was a blow that should have fallen on our shoulders. From that time onward, we see a proliferation of images of Jesus hanging on the cross. Cross, which had originally been a symbol of scorn that non-Christians used to mock the pathetic death of Jesus, became the symbol of the faith par excellence. Some of these images emphasize Jesus' suffering. You could see the pain on his face and the blood dripping off his body. Staring at the physical manifestation of Jesus' suffering, monks would often self-flagellate or whip themselves to feel the pain and suffering that their Savior felt in an effort to punish and tame the desires of the flesh. Other images of Jesus on the cross depicted Jesus in a state of divine contemplation, almost as though the artist was unable to conceive that the divine Christ could actually bear physical pain. He was God, after all, and could not suffer. To reemphasize the message of substitutionary atonement for the masses and why it was so central for the faith, carvings and sculptures of Jesus hanging from the cross looked down on every high altar built in the Middle Ages. Each time the Mass or Holy Communion was celebrated, Jesus' death was reenacted, and that death, that suffering, had redemptive power for those who participated in the sacrament. And if you doubted it, you could look up at the crucifix above the high altar and see it for yourself. The Middle Ages was also a time when the church worked out the theology of death, hell, purgatory, and heaven. Toward the end of the Middle Ages, especially after the Black Death, we see images of Jesus in heaven, judging souls to eternal bliss or everlasting torture. The most famous of these images of the Last Judgment, Michelangelo painted on the wall of the Sistine Chapel. But they can also be found carved in stone in cathedrals across Western Europe. Reformed Protestants like the early Congregationalists, avoided images of Jesus or the saints in worship spaces. But that's not to say that images of Jesus disappeared. Rembrandt, a good, reformed Dutch Protestant, painted Jesus as a Dutchman of his day. Much like Protestant sermons that tried to bring the biblical text to life, artists like Rembrandt tried to bring Jesus into their context. Seen those paintings? I have to confess, I found this class at Yale fascinating. In the 19th century, we saw the rise of liberal theology along with the Romantic movement in England and the United States. Sure enough, when you look at 19th century paintings from Protestant England and America, we find a very human Jesus in a romanticized biblical world. The Pre-Raphaelites like William Holman Hunt and Dante Gabriel Rossetti were famous for these paintings. Perhaps you know William Hunt's Jesus, knocking at the door, holding a lantern in his hand and gazing out at you. In the mid-20th century, mainline Protestant Christianity in America became associated with American success, American exceptionalism. Warner Salmon's Salmon's Jesus was sent with every Protestant soldier who went off to World War II. You see his famous version of Jesus in churches even to this day. It is the most commonly reproduced image of Christ. There is the face of Jesus, with his blue eyes framed with long, dirty blonde hair, Jesus staring off into the distance as though looking into the optimistic future of white America. And as Protestant Christianity began to embrace liberation theology, so did the artists. The 1960s and 70s, we see Jesus as a black African or as a Native American. An artist in the 1980s depicted Jesus hanging on the cross covered with the lesions from the AIDS virus. Or more recently, there was Jesus lying on a park bench as a homeless person in Davidson, North Carolina. Everywhere we look, 
we see images of Jesus. Images that reflect something about our culture and time. What does that tell us about him? Make of all that. Earlier in the book of Ezekiel, we see a fantastic vision. Ezekiel has an out-of-body experience where he's lifted by the hair and transported from Babylon to the temple in Jerusalem. There, Ezekiel sees abominations done by the priests in the temple. And then a remarkable thing happens. The very glory and presence of God rides out of Jerusalem on a chariot, chariot borne by cherubim and brings Ezekiel back by the rivers of Babylon. This is a powerful vision for the people at the time who were living in exile. You see, these Jewish leaders, this, this Jewish elite, were separated from the temple in Jerusalem. They were separated from the center of their religion. Judaism at the time depended on the temple and the sacrifices that were offered there. No temple, no Judaism. But in this vision of Ezekiel's, he is showing that the presence of God is not limited merely to one place, to the temple. The presence of God goes with God's people. It goes where God's law is observed and God's will is done. It transcends any particular time and place. This was a radical notion for the time. When Jesus was alive, his presence was limited to his physical body. Those who met Jesus and heard his teachings and experienced his healings had their lives transformed. But that transformation was limited to direct contact with the great teacher and rabbi. But something happened after he died. Jesus' disciples felt and experienced his presence in new ways. They experienced him along a road to Emmaus, the breaking of the bread. They experienced him when locked in the upper room, too scared to face the authorities or anyone else for fear of what might happen to them. Jesus appeared to Saul, the persecutor of the faith, while traveling on the road from Jerusalem to Damascus. That vision of Jesus forever transformed Saul's life. And indeed, for the past 2,000 years, Christians have attested to their experiences of the risen word, experiences of God, through the invocation of the memory of Jesus. And it's only logical that people would want to depict it, to show it, to proclaim it through art as well as preaching. The early Christians who huddled in the catacombs, afraid of what the Roman authorities might do, experienced Jesus as the shepherd who gave them courage and pushed them along the way of their faith journeys. They could look up from their prayers and see Jesus with the lamb around his shoulders and know that the lamb was they themselves. They could do it. They could live as Christians because they were being held up by that good shepherd. Christians in the Middle Ages who lived in perpetual fear of their sins and what that might mean for their eternal salvation experienced Jesus when they saw him on the cross. When they witnessed the great sacrifice of the Mass and believed that God took away their sins, that image of Jesus hanging there, blood and all, made them feel forgiven, loved, and free. In an age of death and fear, that image was one of hope. Jesus again appeared in the streets of Amsterdam to those who, like Rembrandt, heard the preaching of the Dutch Reformed Church. They knew that Jesus was not some museum relic, but a living presence in their lives. They met him on the streets in the presence of their neighbors. They didn't need to go see a holy relic or enter a fancy cathedral. 
their Savior was there in the midst of them. And then in the 19th century, when the Industrial Revolution had brought people from small farms and into the soot-filled, blackened cities, where the endless repetition of factory labor made people yearn for something beyond the mundane, Jesus appeared in a calm, pastoral scene of their childhood. And as the embodiment of what human life could be when it was infused with the divine, it made them realize that the transcendent was possible, even in the incessant clockwork of modern times. And when you were a black person living in racist America, a country that had legal segregation, where people drilled into you that you were less than others because of the color of your skin, you experienced Jesus as a fellow African, one who whispered again and again that you were a child of God. And to see that image, to look at Jesus with the same hair as you had and the same beautiful hue of your skin, did that not have the power to show you God incarnate? And when you were a gay man at the height of the AIDS epidemic and you had to watch as one friend after another succumb to that horrible disease and then hear preachers condemn you at every corner, when the churches that had raised you closed their doors in your face while the government denied basic funds for medical research, how powerful was it to see Jesus on the cross, his body covered with the lesions of Carposi sarcoma? In the compassion that, show, that so many showed in spite of the hate, did you not experience the word of God incarnate? Another name for Christ the King Sunday is the reign of Christ Sunday. It's the day when we celebrate that Jesus does indeed reign. Not in the throne rooms or halls of power, which are so often governed by greed and Machiavellian maneuvering. Jesus reigns where there appears to be no light, where people see no way forward, where they're racked by guilt, overcome by depression, stressed out and anxious to the point of near paralysis. That is where Jesus reigns. The people of Ezekiel's day heard the message that God would be their shepherd, even when they sat and wept by the waters of Babylon. They heard the promise that God would send a new shepherd in the line of David. And Christians, after Jesus' horrible death, experienced Christ in new and profound ways that transcended the physical. Here on this Sunday, we hear that promise anew. Christ does reign, not necessarily where you might expect him, but he is there. And when we look at the great art of Jesus over the ages, we are reminded of that fact. Where is Jesus today in your life? How would you depict him? You had the artistic talents to do so. Is Jesus an immigrant crossing the border or dressed in fabulous drag? Is he patiently standing at a rally for fair housing? Is he walking on a beach in your dream while scenes of your life flash by where sometimes there are two sets of footprints and other times just one? It's worth thinking about. Maybe now is the time to go buy an image of Jesus for your home or your office. One that speaks to you where you are now on your journey of faith. In our secular world, we all need to be reminded that Christ reigns. We have a deep-seated need to believe that the promise is true. And I hope as you go forth this morning, you can, you can consider 
some physical reminder of that great truth. Because it might help you know God when you need God the most. It might help you experience the very word incarnate, the very word of God incarnate. It's again.